you're listening to the Energy is Love podcast. Chris Fletcher. <laughs> I'm so fucking giddy. I'm like a dork. I was so excited uh, <laughs> when you reached out on um, Instagram and we were able to make this happen because I haven't talked to you in, I don't even know how long. Yeah, I don't even remember the last time we talked or connected in any way. And so it's been, uh, I've been excited leading up to this. Yes, you have. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would guess it was, it's pre-COVID, which, you know, it seems like we've been in COVID now for three calendar years. So it's, it's been a minute. Yeah. When did you guys move? Was that during 2020 or was it per, before? Uh, 2021. Yeah, we okay. moved from California to Michigan. So I'm sitting in uh, the basement of a of a beautiful house right off of a lake, and uh, it's I think it's about 38 degrees outside, which is which is very different than than sunny San Diego, California. <laughs> what? Uh, go ahead, Ben. I was gonna say from San Diego to Michigan. What brought that on? Yeah, good question. Um, the short answer is my wife. Um, the, the broader answer is that, um, my wife's family is out here. Her, her whole dad's side is out here and it's a big family. Um, her dad had six brothers. So there was a lot of boys running around, a lot of cousins running around. She would spend summers out here and, um, she always had this affinity and this love for her grandmother and her grandma just turned 94 this year. Um, she, she's, she's an amazing woman for a variety of reasons. Um, but when we, when we got a a chance, we would come out here to Michigan at least once a year, sometimes twice a year. And, uh, we were out in July of 20, no, excuse me. Yeah. July of 2020. Um, and I just noticed there was a very big change in her demeanor. She was, sad and felt lonely she lives alone in a big house um and uh, i had been furloughed from my job and i talked to my wife about it and i said you know we've talked about moving more times than i can count and we've never done anything about it it just didn't seem like the right time but now feels like the right time we've only got so many more years with shirley uh, which is her grandma's name um so let's let's sell everything that we own and move across country. <laughs> so we did. That is so beautiful. Wow. Yeah. That is very beautiful. Are you, um, you're born and or not born and raised, but you're always California guy. Did you grow up in California? Right. If I remember. Yeah, basically. I mean, there was a couple of years where, um, we followed uh, my mom's second husband to Arkansas. So I have memories of living in Arkansas for about maybe three, three and a half years. Um, but the majority of my time was, was in Orange County, California. And then I uh, moved away to San Diego when I went to college. How are you liking it there? Here in Michigan? Um, so again, a complex answer. I, I love so much about Michigan. Um, I'm an outdoor kind of guy by heart. I was in the Boy Scouts when I was young. Um, I love hiking, fishing, being out in the wilderness, just uh, 
um, being anywhere but indoors, I love. Um, but it's a bit of it's a bit of a culture shock, you know. I think uh, a lot gets tossed around about the the two uh, polar coasts, the East Coast and the West Coast, being a, a certain mentality, and the Midwest being the opposite mentality. And uh, to some extent, that's true. Um, so there were some growing pains, but um, yeah, I mean, the biggest thing is this this family is so inviting and welcoming and wholesome and yeah i feel i feel more at home here than really anywhere else i've ever been which is pretty special it's a good feeling man it's very special when it comes to like the fear surrounding big life changes right we had a couple on uh back at the end of the year of whatever fucking last year 2021 2021. (laughs) (laughs) and they were just in the beginning stages they were like literally the following week after we recorded the episode they loaded everything up and they Mm -hmm. moved to nashville or they moved to tennessee and um stephanie and i talk a lot about um because our son our oldest is or not our oldest our youngest um is 15 so he's got a couple more years of high school and the idea of trying to pick him up and move him right now somewhere else just doesn't quite seem fair you know, he's pretty established with friend groups and he's in that nice, good flow of high school and high school is such a shitty time anyways, that we don't want to do it now, but we're making these insanely beautiful plans for, you know, once he graduates, once he kind of gets established, um, after high school and everything more, like more that. More than kind of gets established we, once he's established. <laughs> <laughs> he graduates like on June 3rd. So on June 4th, no, we're going to be moving. Yeah. Not, that's not how it's going to happen. <laughs> But um, the fear uh, of that, right? You said you guys were talking about it for a long time leading up to the decision. And then finally it was like, now's the time. But walk us through, because I'm always fascinated by, Steph and I talk all the time about like the difference between wanting to change, wanting to grow, wanting to do these things, and then actually doing them and how much... Mm how many times people just get stuck in the in-between spot, right? Where they want all of this change and all of these different things in their life, but the fear keeps them from doing that. So what did it feel like um, to go through that and kind of actually actively face it and do it? Or maybe there wasn't much fear for you. I don't know. I'm assuming. Well, there was certainly, there was certainly fear. Um, but over the let's say the last 10 years or so of my life with my wife, we've made incremental changes in our lives. We've, we've stepped forward into the unknown more times than I can count, but each time it was a little bit of a bigger step, a little bit of a bigger step. So it wasn't, it wasn't so much that we decided one day, let's do this huge, crazy thing. Um, We started small. And that made things much more manageable. So, you know, by the time we were contemplating, you know, selling all the things that we owned and moving, um, it wasn't as daunting. It wasn't as scary. Um, a few years before we had sold our house and downsized to a condo. So we were in the country. We had a good size house with a good size plot of land. And then we sold that and shrunk down to a one bedroom loft downtown San Diego. So we had already sort of made some pretty big changes. Um, I had changed my career. I'd, I had uh, quit my job and started a new career. 
Um, so, and, 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 and part of that backstory is um, we'd spent a lot of time, energy, and money trying to have kids, which uh, didn't end up, and it didn't end up being um, successful on, on that end, but we learned a lot about what we really wanted in life, what we really wanted to do with our time, which is so limited and precious on this, on this earth. Um, it helped, um, it helped shape, it helped shape our path, uh, clear away the clutter of what was unnecessary, what was unimportant. And so the fear was just old baggage, old baggage that we could just at some point learn to drop or drop a little at a time, take one item out. <laughs> the uh, move also came in conjunction because you changed careers again, right? With the move? To some extent, yeah. So what, um, what I was doing before was, was um, performance coaching in the hotel industry. So I was doing something that was akin to what I, what I had previously been doing, which was business management. So I was, I was uh, contracted through a company and I would go around to different hotels and I would talk to the front desk people about how to drive sales, but also how to improve the experience of their guests. Um, and the one, the one through line between my prior career in retail and my, my career as a performance coach was what I enjoyed most was speaking with those, um, those employees, with those colleagues um, about what they wanted in life and really helping to guide them in some sort of mentorship way um, to, to feel empowered uh, to, to be able to make some of those changes themselves. And, um, you know, I suppose there's some irony in the fact that in, in order to be uh, a mentor to others making changes in their lives that I had to do some of those changes myself. So um, no, uh, just half-ass it, just fake it. <laughs> fake it till you make it well yeah i'm i mean that's never really been a it's never really been something i could do um the the half-assing or the faking um for me there's a there's a big piece of integrity and authenticity that once i was able to connect with i i, I won't abandon or let go um so that's something that i i, I try to carry forward um, and everything that I do. Uh, but yes, the short answer is that uh, I changed careers again from a performance coach and I decided that I wanted to lean more into the space where I could help people with their whole life, all the things that they want to do um, that maybe they're a little too uh, too timid to do right now in this moment, be a cheerleader, be somebody that could could, you know, be an advocate for them. Very cool. I had something come up that kind of works in with that. My response to Craig immediately was, that's not happening. We're not going to do that. And I was thinking, I'm just like in, like going back to our move part of the conversation. Mm -hmm. And then it hit that. I'm like, what is that? Is that a good, me being a good parent? Or is that using the mask of being a good parent or whatever you would put there as an excuse to not move, to not make the jump? So what you were just saying, how you help um, your clients like identify those fears and how to push through, how, how do you see that? How would you like encourage or guide them through that process? Sure, sure. Coach or Chris? 
(laughs) (laughs) Well, my, my biggest, my biggest takeaway is that people know the truth in their own heart. And sometimes it takes a little digging to get to that truth. And so I'm, I'm curious about for you, you know, what does that fear feel like when you're thinking about moving? What is it similar to? What does it feel familiar? Feels like abandoning my children, leaving them defenseless on their own, completely forgetting the fact that they don't need me for that. They are strong individuals and they've got that. They don't, they don't need the security blanket because they are very capable. Mm. But I still, my, my theory is like, I can't leave my babies. Yeah. So what is your identity if you're not a mother to those children? Who is Stephanie if she's not a mother? Um, there's too much of a block on that. I can be, I can tell you like identities about me and who I am, but I cannot see that with the mother part removed. Mm-hmm. Like, I can't like it's these things. And always I'm a mom. Like that is, yeah. that's that first. So I don't, I don't know if I, I don't know how I would look at that without that component. Sure. Sure. That's, that's a good, that's a good place to start, huh? <laughs> like that's. Well, I wonder, is there, is there a space that you can view or see right now where you're still their mother, but just in a different capacity? Yes. Only because we have had some things thrown in our faces pretty intense recently that, um, that has been brought to my awareness and it is an active goal. And just from you saying that, I say like, oh, this is still old. This is still old hanging on. This is still the dynamics that I was raised with that mm. are really unhealthy and not, not only codependent, but can be smothering that um, not can be. I had to make it soft. That is absolutely smothering <laughs> that I'm working on releasing so my children can breathe. Mm. We've been doing crazy work in the last <laughs> uh, three, four months with all of our momship. So mm. the beautiful thing is like, it's horrible and it's painful and it's frustrating. Like, cause we're seeing, we both are doing this actually. And I don't know if it's just the beautiful aspect of kind of how things work, right. Or how Stephanie and I work. I don't know what it is, but we do seem to kind of go through these cycles together where we will process similarly um, similar topics, similar issues, similar things. And right now we're both in the thick of this mom shit and our mom wound and the story of our mothers and the, our moms are doing a wonderful job of still teaching us by example, (laughs) (laughs) because they are just showing us everything that is triggering all of this pain inside of us and all of these wounds and all of this frustration Mm -hmm. And it's like they maybe subconsciously know, right? There's probably some beautiful divine, you know, story at play here. But yeah, they're pissing us the fuck off with the way that they're behaving and the things that they're doing. And it's really, really difficult. But it is beautiful because we absorb it, we take it, we sit with it, and we're still doing that. But then we're able to turn around and implement it almost instantaneously with our children so that we can sever those 
old things, mm-hmm. right? Some of the things, some of them are easier. Some of them are really simple. I'll give you an example. Um, this is an easy one too. Like we haven't talked a lot about, uh, I've been avoiding talking about my mom shit on this podcast since I've been in the middle of it. And I have, um, I, I don't know if I'm going to yet because it's really, really painful. But anyways, I realized I was in the, I was in a conversation with my mom and she had to like, not correct me, but I would like say something and then she would respond with, yes, you're right, but wait until you figure out this other thing. Like she's always kind of one upping me in a sense where it's, um, you know, yeah, you're smart and you're capable and you're right. You're right. You, you know, I hit the nail on the head with that one. But there's this whole other layer that you don't even see yet, that you don't even understand because for whatever reason. And I realized kind of in this instantaneous kind of way of seeing everything play out that like as a parent, she never let me like not necessarily be right, but like never show her something new, never teach her something, you know, never except what I was saying is like, oh my gosh, yep, you're right. I never thought of it that way. It was always like, yeah, but there was always these yeah, buts with everything. And I hated the way that felt. I hated the way that that felt at like 40, right? I'm like, I don't want you to correct what I'm saying. I want you to just simply like literally, honestly, truthfully, just like marvel at what I've just said. I want you to think that I'm the smartest motherfucker that, you know, was ever born and just kind of bask in the glory of me as your child. And um, she doesn't do that. And so I realized that. And then instantly I'm like, I can fix this. I can change this. So now it's like letting my son teach me things, letting him, because mm. it's all the little stuff of like, uh, I mean, he'll come home and be like, you know, what did he tell us? There was something last night. He was watching some we were having an, you were having an argument with him. He was trying to show you a clip of something or I, there's so many things, Chris, we can't keep him. Straight. I don't remember. <laughs> oh no. But he'll try to tell us something like, Hey, did you know that this thing, you know, did you oh, know that wolves have webbed feet, something like that. And instead of being like, Oh, wow, that's really amazing. I didn't know that. I'll be like, what are you talking about? Wolves don't have webbed feet. And then I would educate him about wolves. Right, mm. because I'm uh, mentoring him and guiding him, and I want him to have the correct information, and I want yeah. him to know things. So I have to impart my wisdom onto him. But yeah. at some point, what I'm doing is inhibiting his curiosity and telling him that he's wrong and that his ideas aren't valuable and that he doesn't have worth and somebody's always going to know more than you, right? And that's not what I want him to know. So immediately it's like oh wow that's really interesting i did not know that wolves had web feet right and he'll figure it out one day and maybe wolves do have web feet i don't know uh yeah. so that's something that our moms are still teaching us and that's just like the tip of the iceberg that's something you're still teaching me with that just like hearing that because I, I finally i'm sitting here racking my brain and it was the chucky e. cheese mouse was named after after the um chucky e. horror movie series mm. i was like I'm pretty sure that was around first and who knows like that was my assumption but i absolutely did that i'm like no this is where you're wrong let me show you how like i, I don't want my thought is like i want to guide you with information 
Exactly. But right. what I'm doing the wrong is way. He's gonna you're say, like, wrong. Yeah. He goes I'm to school right. and he's like, Chucky is totally the impetus for, you know, yeah. Chucky e. cheese and all this kind of stuff. He's going to look like an idiot maybe, but maybe he won't. And truthfully, it doesn't really matter. He gets to experience all of those things. Yeah. <laughs> that was a big ramble. I don't know how we got on that, but yeah, lots of mom shit. Yeah, there's, there's, I, I think there's plenty of mom shit to go around the world <laughs> a couple times. That's a tough it's, spot. Uh, it's bizarre because I thought for sure, um, like when you met me, everything was dad shit. Everything was processing my relationship with my dad. Everything was trying to deal with the lack of whatever it was with him and our relationship. And then taking that information and flipping it and using it in regards to being a father now. And I thought I had not necessarily like done all of my mom work in a sense, but I was happy with my relationship with my mom and kind of content with it and had made peace with what she did, what she didn't do, how she was, right? Saw her as a human that was fallible and all of those kind of different things. So I was at peace with that and I knew I had to do a lot of work with my dad. And then I got through all that with my dad and kind of got to the same place where I was happy with my dad and accepted him for who he was and all the mistakes and all the benefits and all these different things. So I thought I was done. I'm like, cool. I did my parents. I was moving on to my brothers and healing some of those wounds and some of that stuff. Um, and obviously our relationship and everything. But, and then I don't know where fucking mom comes back and she's like, Hey, I'm not done. I got way more to show you. And I'm like, seriously? Cause this stuff is really, really painful. Like mm. it's causing me a lot of, um, it's deep pain. And I'm realizing how much of it is like the other day in therapy, I had this realization that I want to be angry at my mom. Like my therapist was trying to give me the realistic understanding of like, yes, it's that you can feel that pain and whatever. But at the same time, you know, your mom's human and everybody makes mistakes. And he was doing it in a much more therapeutic kind of eloquent way, but basically just like, yeah, people fuck up as parents and we have to accept that. And I totally understand that. But at the time I was like, I want to rage. Like I am, I want to be able to be angry at my mom as, as angry as I want to be for as long as I want to be. And I don't want anybody to make it better or correct it. I just want to rage in it because I'm fucking angry. Mm -hmm. Yes. I understand all of those other things, but I'm really fucking angry. And I had the realization that he's like, well, what's stopping you? Why don't you do that? Go ahead. Like, you have permission to do that now. And it was this really like, um, sometimes I get stuff that feels, it's almost like I'm embodying this little boy, right? I'm embodying this small little inner child, Craig. And I could feel the fear associated with like upsetting my mom and losing her. Cause it's like, if I piss her off or if I anger her, even in just the simplest of ways, right. Spilling a glass of milk or something like that, then she's going to stop loving me. Mm -hmm. And she's the only one that like loves me. And she's the only one that protects me. And she's the only one that's like really there and really sees me. So this whole thing of like, I want to rage against this woman and express all of this anger, but I'm afraid to, because I will lose her. So now, Chris, you have to talk because I talked way more about fucking mom shit than I had intended to because <laughs> <laughs> it's bringing it all up. And I'm like, not right now. I don't want to do it yeah. right now. <laughs> but yeah. Yeah, I'm I mean, right. I can I, I, I can absolutely relate. Um, 
you know, I, I heard or read something recently that said that um, your mother is your first love. Every, every child, their first love is their mother. Um, and sometimes those, those relationships are broken apart early, really, really early. And sometimes they're uh, more complex. They, they uh, occur over years and years and years. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I can, I can absolutely relate. I think I've gone through, um, a lot of those same growing pains with, with my mom, similar to you, I had daddy issues. Um, <laughs> I had daddy issues that because they were much more on the surface, they were, they sort of took the hierarchy of needs. They, they were what needed to be addressed earlier. Um, and then once those were more or less resolved. Yeah. Then, then the mom stuff came back, which was, um, this feeling that I was angry. I, I, you know, I, I, I think I was angry most all my life. Um, and I didn't have an outlet for it. I didn't have an ability or wasn't allowed to have the voice to be angry. Um, you know, some of the things that I recall my mom saying to me, I've carried through, you know, to my now 41 years of, of life, which was, um, you know, if I don't get my anger under control, then fill in the blank. It was, there was always some sort of ultimatum, um, which meant that my anger wasn't allowed. I wasn't allowed to be upset or mad or frustrated. I just had to swallow that and bury that and not show it to the world. So the the after effect was that it just magnified my anger it just made me feel more angry inside because i didn't have an outlet for it um and it would come out in really nasty ways it would come out in ways that um you know i wouldn't be proud to be in the room <laughs> with myself in those earlier days um do you want to but, share one of the ways maybe that it did come out, how it kind of manifested back then? Sure, sure. Um, I, I would say the biggest way was I, I, I tended to have boundary issues. I, I wouldn't set um, very firm boundaries. They would be very porous. I would let people in uh, that I knew would eventually hurt me, um, and I wouldn't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't protect myself. Um, and then something grievous might happen and I, I would, I would be swallowing all that anger and frustration until the moment I just blew up and then I would blow up on everyone around me, um, you know, slamming doors, punching the wall, um, kicking things, just being out of control, just out of control. Um, and even now, as I, as I talk about it, I can feel you know, the, the heat build in my chest and the, um, the tension in my shoulders. And so, yeah, what I, what I do in those moments was just, it's like, you know, if you've got a, a, a bottle and you just shake it and shake it and shake it, and all of a sudden the, the top blows off, that's basically what, what those experiences were like for me. Um, yeah, there were, 
there were ways in which I, I, I think I hurt. Well, I don't think, um, I purposefully was vile with, you know, how I would speak to others around me because I was in such pain. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's, a it's not really a place that feels healthy or feels, um, adjusted. Uh, and thankfully with a fair amount of therapy and, and a loving relationship with my wife and a great relationship with my sister. Um, I've, I've sort of learned that it's okay to express anger. Um, and I can, I can do it in a way that doesn't, doesn't make people around me feel unsafe. Uh, it allows me to feel heard. If it allows me to feel like I have a voice. Um, and it really connects with the people that are around me because they recognize that I'm frustrated about something um, and we can talk through it 99.9% of the time. Do you feel like I, um, <laughs> this is a massive oversimplification, but I felt for a long time that kind of all of the things that I carried shame for in regards to my life and all of the things that I, you know, looking back over the course of your life, you have all of these things that you carry all that baggage of I'm wrong for this. I'm wrong for that. I fucked up this, I, you know, all these things that you carry shame for. And I, not the majority of my life, like damn near all of my life up until just very recently, I blamed my dad for all of that. All of mm -hmm. that stemmed from him not being there and not being present in all these kind of different ways of how he was present when he was there. But basically all the negative things about myself were things that I got from my dad and learned behaviors and coping mechanisms and all that kind of stuff. Right. And that was my narrative for my life. Like as soon as I kind of became self-aware in my twenties and started to pick things apart and think about them, that was the scapegoat. That was the thing. It was like, well, this is systemic because of the emotional abuse from my dad or how he, you know, wasn't there. And my parents got divorced when I was 14. And then my dad, you know, left and we had even less of a uh, relationship with him. I had even less of a relationship with him. And so that was my narrative. And then recently, as all this stuff with my mom's come up, I've realized I spent way more time with my mom than I ever spent with my dad. And just by like sheer numbers, she fucked me up way more than he ever did, right? Mm. Just because of that dynamic of, you know, day in and day out, she's the one I'm interacting with. She's the one I'm witnessing. She's the one I'm observing. She's the one I'm mirroring. She's all of those things. And that, that thing of like using my dad as a scapegoat to make everything about me wrong Um. I think was something that she gave me. That's mm. another thing that I had awareness of is realizing that she had never, I was really, really hard pressed to think about a positive thing that she had said about my dad at any given point in my life. Since I had the awareness of that, I've been looking for it and I still can't really find anything fucking positive. Um, so yeah, I realized that she's responsible far more than my dad is for the way that I turned out. Now that's not placing blame on her, obviously. There's these two concepts of like intellectually understanding 
she's just a human, right? And she did the best that she could. And I love her and I accept her and all those kind of things. But also from this other side of being able to see, oh, wait a minute. She played much bigger role in positive and negative, right? And my dad, you know, didn't just play a negative role. He also played quite a, a positive role. So I'm trying to balance that realization, figure out those dynamics now that are a completely different story than at any given point in my life. You mentioned something about knowing intellectually that, you know, you love your mom and she provided a lot of good things in your life. I, I'm kind of maybe mincing words. Um, and I think, I think that's the, I think that's the purest form of love is to be able to see the truth as it were and still accept it. So still recognizing that there are wounds there, there's pain, um, it's difficult, but coming back to this intellectual knowledge that she was doing the best that she could under those circumstances. Um, in, in my experience, it's, it's painful, but that pain is is like a fire I've had to go through to to get to the other side of healing and healing my relationship with with my mom. Yeah, it's undecided what I'm going to do about that yet. That's the thing I'm still kind of on the fence about is like, do I leave it where it's at with her, and then just from this point forward in life move forward healing my side of it? Right, I don't necessarily need her participation in all of my processing and healing of the relationship between the two of us. So I'm trying to decide that, but I want to get off this topic because I didn't want to talk about all my mom shit anyways. <laughs> you just bring it out of me, man. What is, um, you were speaking about your anger before and how it would come out and the unhealthy ways of that. What does your expression of anger look like now? What are some of the tools that you use so you can be angry in a, in a way that feels safe and healthy to you? Mm. Uh, that's a beautiful question. Thank you. So it, it starts with fundamentally taking care of myself. Um, to, to kind of take a step back and, and get into what, what Craig was just talking about with his relationship with his dad. Um, I had I had my father. I had my mom's second husband. I had my mom's third husband, who was essentially my dad. He was the man who raised me. Um, and, and now I have less of a relationship with him. But all the while, um, I denied the fact that my, my parents being divorced when I was 18 months and then my mom remarrying multiple times and us moving all over the place had any impact on me whatsoever. Um, so I internalized a lot of the struggles that I had as not being good enough, not being worthy, not being a good person. And, uh, a lot of those sort of, um, self defeating, um, behaviors of just not taking care of myself, not exercising, not doing the things that, um, leave me resourced to um, respond uh, in, in, a, in a way that feels grown up, 
let's just say. Um, but now, um, yeah, these, these, in these times, I exercise regularly. I meditate daily. Um, I get enough sleep. I drink lots of water. I, I, I'm taking care of myself in a way that, you know, in my younger days, there, there was this, there's this barrier that I didn't, I didn't deserve to take care of myself. I had to take care of others around me. I had to, um, weight on other people's feelings how how are these people feeling in this circumstance and how can i alter their feelings so i would take a lot of responsibility on in that space um and by by taking care of myself first getting getting my house in order um it allows me to show up in what would have otherwise been a difficult conversation or experience um from a place where I can see what Craig was talking about, this intellectual knowledge, but also having this sort of deeper sense that the person that I'm looking at across the table is a, it's a beautiful person. It's a beautiful creature, human being. Um, and what can I see? What can I see about them that I see in myself own that and speak from the heart and say, you know what? I don't really like the way that you spoke to me uh, a few moments ago. And um, I'm not really in a place where I can talk about it right now, but I feel like I need to at least address the fact that that happened. Hey. Part of um, some of the, the practices that have, that have helped um, is uh, nonviolent communication, which you, you may be familiar with, but there's a gentleman named Marshall uh, Rosenthal who developed this nonviolent communication. And it's essentially that you're only in control of your own emotions. You're not in control of anybody else. Um, and that you're capable of, of um, meeting your own needs. And when you distill a conversation or an argument or a disagreement down to needs, and you start talking about what does this person need? What do I need? And how can we meet in the middle? And if we can't, then I'm a whole complete and resourceful person. And I don't, I don't need somebody else to meet my needs, but if they would, that'd be really cool. <laughs> yeah. We're noticing a lot lately where we, uh, it's like, I don't need this, right? I'm like you said, I'm a whole complete person and I'm completely capable of managing my emotions in this moment, but it'd be really nice if you could just come hug me and hold me for a minute. <laughs> yeah. And you know, sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't, but it's nice to have that uh, option, at least, right, where it doesn't feel like I'm solely responsible for managing my shit by myself, even though at times I feel like, okay, I have to, or I can, or there's definitely times where it's necessary, it's important, that there's growth that comes in going through that stuff by yourself, I think, but it's really nice to be able to get a hug. <laughs> <laughs> um, I want to change up a little bit. Uh, last week's episode, um, we talked a lot about somehow we got down this endless rabbit hole about religion and we talk about religion quite a bit um, because of the Mormon church here in Utah and Stephanie and I both having um, close relationships with the church in some way, shape or form, whether it's from being a member of the church or people, you know, that we're still friends with and family and things like that. Um, and I know that you have a background with the Mormon church as well, mm -hmm. but one of the things that we talked a great deal about was 
not just the shame that comes in association with religion and all those different dynamics and reasons and kind of how that plays out in reality, right. In culture and with society and things like that. But cause I want to hear about your experience with the Mormon church and we can go down some of those uh, paths. But before that, um, just the bigger question, the broader question I want you to kind of pontificate on and share with us is your thought about, yes, religion has a lot of negative things that happen because of it, right? Wars are started because of religion, you know, mass um, genocide, all sorts of different things. Does the benefit outweigh the cost of religion? So if we look at some of the benefits of religion and community and giving people a sense of hope and all of these kind of things, right? Does that outweigh the negative side of what religion has to offer the world and what it takes from the world and from its, you know, the people that listen, not listen, but follow religious people. <laughs> mm. yeah. What do you think? So it's a great question. And it's one that I've, I've wrestled with and, and come to, I've come to this point. Um, th there's two different types of religion. Uh, there's the institution and then there's the philosophy. And what I mean by that is institutions are led by people. They're corrupted by people. Um, sometimes those motives are as fallible as human nature. And then the philosophy, which is sort of like the, if you were to put it on a pedestal, this is its best form for the greater good of, of humanity. Um, and, and for me, I feel like that's what I take away from religion. Uh, the, the little wisdom, the little nuggets of wisdom in each uh, different type of religion. There's, there's a lot of through lines between them. Um, I had mentioned earlier that I, I, I meditate. And, um, you know, when I was younger and I was in the Mormon church, uh, I would pray. Well, I don't pray anymore in that sense. But every time I sit on my meditation cushion, I'm praying. It's a very similar behavior. I clear my mind. I focus my intention on what do I want to set aside for this moment. I take a couple moments to be grateful about what I have today in this moment. And then it's really about just accepting that uh, individual moment as a slice in time, not wishing for anything different, uh, not wanting to push anything away, uh, not wanting to pull anything closer. And that's the practice. And I feel like that is um, sort of the quintessence of what prayer it was meant to be. It was meant to be a connection with the divine. Well, what is the divine? I mean, you, can, you can define it any way you'd like. But for me, the way I define it is life, breathing this air in this moment and um, not wishing for anything to be any different. I feel like, um, I love that. I love that. I love the idea that the divine is being in that present moment of not wishing anything to be different and how hard that is to accomplish. When you said that I'm sitting there thinking about like how frequently I'm thinking about needing something to be different, right? Wanting to change things. And our mindset has shifted lately to where it's kind of in this more positive frame of mind, right? We're moving towards things that we 
want to shift and change into as opposed to moving away from things that we want to get away from, right? Things mm-hmm. need to be different from the past. So I got to hurry up and go in this direction forward. But just that idea of being able to be present and quiet and then suddenly I wouldn't change anything. I wouldn't change a single fucking thing about not just this moment, but my life as a whole in this moment. That's beautiful. It's very beautiful. It's also really hard. Yeah. (laughs) Because some of those moments aren't lovely. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They're hard. They're difficult. Um, The impermanence of of that moment it's it's like the impermanence of life right we all we all will pass away and die someday um and this moment will pass away and die in the next so what are we worried about what's what's going to happen after after this this moment right here in time well if if i'm having a bad experience if i'm (laughs) if i'm carrying some baggage about a conversation that I had earlier in the day or somebody cut me off, then I'm sitting on the cushion and, and thinking about like, oh, this, this moment feels great. No, no, I'm thinking <laughs> about that asshole who cut me off in, in traffic. Yeah. But yeah, the, the practice is, is coming back, just coming back um, and, and connecting with, with truth. Well, the only truth that I have in this moment is that I can feel the breath on the tip of my nose. I can feel it in my belly. I can feel uh, the seat underneath me. That's the only real truth. Everything about the guy who cut me off and why he did it and why he's an asshole and why he should, you know, crash and burn. That's all the story. That's all the story. I like the differentiation too, between the philosophy of religion as kind of its purest form and its highest and greatest good in a sense, right? I like that. I like being able to separate and look at it. We think about that all the time too. And like, it's not that I hate the Mormon church or the people that are in the Mormon church, right? There's a lot of them that I love and care about deeply, but I don't like the philosophy, right? I think that, yes, they do have some redeeming beliefs, but at the end of the day, I think a lot of their teachings and a lot of their philosophies are hurtful and painful and restrictive and are doing far more bad than they are good. Um, Tell us just in the most abridged version to kind of give us some context for your experience with the church. And then I've got some follow-up questions in regards to kind of shame and how it manifests through religion for you. Sure. Sure. Uh, My mom remarried when I was about seven or eight and uh, the man that she had married had previously been a part of the uh, the Mormon community. He was, he was in the LDS community. And when they got married, he thought, you know, this would be a good thing for our family. This would be a good thing to um, set up some structure, some community, some things that we, my sister and I and my mom really didn't have in our lives before that. And... Um, I will forever be grateful for for that, bringing me to the community of people who accepted me as um, a beautiful living creature, a a human on this earth. And that that always felt special. And I remember, you know, every, uh, the first Sunday of every month, 
and we would do the fasting and they would invite the kids up to come and bear their testimony. I was one of the first kids every, every week because, or every month, because I felt so alive and so loved in that space. And then the naivety of my childhood sort of slowly started to, to drift away. And I could see um, there, there were some pretty big chasms between what they were teaching and what they were practicing um, that I couldn't, I couldn't um, write. And um, when I was 14, that's when I decided I wasn't going back. You know, a couple of the incidents were, I think the, the, the one that stands out the most was I had mentioned that I was in the Boy Scouts. So we would go to the church every Wednesday and the, the church was the host for the Boy Scouts. Um, my, my scout leader was one of the, um, one of the leaders in the church. Um, and the ward that I belonged to had a lot of kids in it who whose families weren't a part of the church and so we had a, a a pretty motley crew of kids and one of the days we ran off to uh the grocery store because I, I don't remember why but we ran off to the grocery store long story short we got in trouble cops had to take us back to the church um and i remember that the people who were who were there that night who were supposed to be the leaders of this organization the way that they made us feel small and unclean and unholy and just really, I don't know, um, gross. Gross is the word that comes up. And I, re I remember being about 13, which I'm already in, in that age where I'm starting to kind of rebel against um, <laughs> adults around me and that sort of anarchistic way and um i just i just remember thinking like this is wrong you are wrong I, I didn't do anything wrong i was just in the wrong place with with the wrong people at the wrong time but you're treating me as though i'm a criminal and um yeah there were there were moments like that here and there um but i never i never really got into the philosophy um, of the Mormon church beyond about the age 14 or so. Um, so I don't, I don't have a, a, a big broad history like, um, like my brothers did or anything like that, but, um, it, it's complex. There's, there's joy and there's happiness, but there's also pain and suffering. Take me through that gross feeling. So coming back and just that sensation of like, they're making me feel, I'll speak for myself. Cause when you said that, I was like, oh yeah, I totally know what that fucking feeling is. And it's like, one of the things that we talked about last week on the episode was I had so many, I mean, it, literally everybody was in the church, right? The small town that we live in and that I grew up in at the time, everybody's in the church. So all my friends, the entire community. And as we stopped, cause we stopped going to church probably like nine, 10 I was maybe like 11 years old, but we were heavily involved in scouting as well. So scouting was a huge, you know, basically tied together with the church. They went hand in hand. If you were involved in scouting, then you were involved with the church in some way. 
and um and we were still heavily involved in scouting but i always felt gross like all of my friends parents and even the majority of my friends would not necessarily i you know obviously once again it's this intellectual understanding that they're not doing it on purpose they're not trying to make me feel gross or wrong or shitty whatever right but that's exactly how i felt i felt fucking gross i felt ashamed for whatever it was you name it right anything that went in opposition to and oftentimes it was even just like i remember the feeling of parents of my friends or adults in the community looking at me and I would get that gross feeling simply because I wasn't part of the church. It wasn't because of, you know, my behavior, something that we were doing, you know, we were like this poor family that grew up on center. It wasn't any of those things. I could tell that they were simply looking at me differently and treating me differently only because I wasn't a part of the church. Mm -hmm. And that's like, I mean, that feels gross. It makes you feel like you, there's something seriously wrong with you. Mm -hmm. And it's like, oh, fuck, I hate that feeling. Yeah. Uh, so I had mentioned that we were, we were converts to the church. And um, it, it, at least in the region where we were, converts weren't exactly first-class Mormons. There were if there was a if this was a feudalistic society they they were serfs they were just slightly below anyone that was born into the church and i felt that often i felt that often um and so i was i, I felt compelled like i said i would get up the first sunday of every month to bear my testimony in direct opposition to show my allegiance to show my faith to really show that like i i want to be a part of this community please let me be part of this community. And yet there were still some, but there were still um, these feelings, um, which are hard to describe, but they're palpable. Um, it's, it's a sense that I'm not quite as welcome as those around me. And that gross feeling that you were talking about, it was shame. It was shame, and it was an adult man trying to shame a 12 or 13-year-old boy or, or a group of them um, over something that seemed rather silly. And I remember the irony in this gentleman because he had a son who was maybe a couple of years older than me, but this, this kid was, I mean... Uh, to take myself back into that space. He was kind of a piece of shit. <laughs> he was just not, he was just not a good kid. Yeah. Um, and um, probably about three or four months after this incident uh, with scouts, I ended up getting into a physical fight with this kid. Um, and, and probably there was some, some other residual baggage there. <laughs> but um, yeah, that was kind of like the, the final straw. Um, uh, just recognizing that he he was shaming me and the other boys in our group because he didn't have a handle on or and couldn't accept his, his own son's um, issues, his inability to you know be be chaste or be uh, reverent was it was a is a big word among the Mormon community. Um, 
And so I, I think uh, it was his just acting out. If I reflect back on it as an adult, it was his trying to affirm that, you know, he's a member of that community as well. Yeah. And that's, it's, that to me is probably the most pernicious thing about um, that community is that you have to continue to prove yourself, prove your worth, whether it's tithing 10% of your, your income or, you know, going up and bearing your testimony. It's, there's always a test. There's always a test. And, um, yeah, for, for me, um, I want to be, even today, I want to be accepted as I am, as I sit here, warts and all, trying to be better. Um, but I shouldn't have to prove it to anybody. No, you shouldn't. Can you relate, babe? Very much. <laughs> Very much. The, the, uh, the hierarchy that exists that you talked about where the, co the converts are second-class citizens, right? Um, that, one of the things, I'm trying to formulate this, the, the Mormon church is, from my experience at least, vastly different here in Utah than it is elsewhere. Um, I have traveled <laughs> a couple of places, um, but I remember when I was like 18 or 19, I moved to Minnesota and there was a Mormon church there, which was kind of fun. It, it, it gave me a sense of home when I saw it because here in this town that we live, there's 50 churches, right? The town is super small and it's like, there's one, you know, one stones throw away from the other. They're everywhere and seeing one elsewhere, um, it just gave me a sense of home because of they all look the same. Anyways, the church itself, I think, and the members of the church are vastly different outside of Utah than in Utah. But some of the things like that's interesting for me to hear because obviously this was in California, right? You said Orange County and stuff, but that hierarchy that exists is so prevalent in that church. And I, and you know, it's, it's very, very clear. Um, the status of certain members in the ward and in the church and how it just kind of, and it's not even necessarily converts, but the way that they will structure things. And, and that alone is like shitty and disgusting, right? You would think like, in my mind, you walk into church and you walk into a religion or there's any sort of religious house or culture or whatever. And it should just be this all accepting, all encompassing, everyone's welcome regardless. And everyone is treated the same way, regardless. And there is no hierarchy. There is no better than or less than. And if I was going to believe in Jesus or God, that's what I would believe that they would um, come from. They would come from that place of just all loving, regardless of anything else. And religion, I think, is so the opposite of that. <laughs> <laughs> Says Craig. <laughs> I feel that struggle with that a lot um because so much of it was like even not being completely submerged in the church so much of that was still my life like these were your expectations these are your goals this is how 
you should and shouldn't behave. This is what you should and shouldn't do. And none of which were healthy. Everything was about suppression and shame and making yourself as small as possible. None of it was healthy. And no matter what you did, you would never, never measure up. So just like that, that impact, it, did, it just, that always felt off. Yet that was my goal for so, so long, so long. Like I wanted that. To meet up. I wanted up. to meet up. I wanted to measure up. I wanted, um, I wanted to be accepted and know that I was good enough in something just something like religion should not be the furthest obtainable thing for you to feel like you matter and that you're loved and you're okay as you are. But that is like the hardest place to find acceptance is there. So it's like you said, um, Chris, I, sorry, sorry, no, go ahead. I didn't, uh, I had never looked at it in regards to always being a test for worth and value mm -hmm. as opposed to just being valued from the get-go. Right. And it is always this test of, I mean, in the Mormon church, it's like, you have to get baptized. And then if you're, if, if you're, if you're a man, right, if you're a boy, then it's the priesthood that's next and all these kind of different things to follow along this trajectory of being truthful and honest and chaste and reverent and all of these things that you have to meet in order to quote unquote, you know, earn the love of God or earn your place in the church, as opposed to just like, oh, are you a human and you're alive? great. <laughs> You're valued and accepted as you are. I had never thought of that in, in that regard. And that sucks. Like, I think that's so shitty, that idea that there's always something else. And I can see the flip side of like, I mean, cause that's kind of the way that my life has been right. Where I will be valued like myself. I will love myself and I will have value for who I am once I meet all of these attainable things. So it's mirrored in that regards of I'm not worthy until I have a job, I have a career, I have a healthy relationship, I, you know, I'm physically fit, uh, uh, my emotional health and mental health is balanced and I'm not fucking crazy, I'm not an alcoholic, I'm not abusing you know, substances, all these kind of different things are tests to meet my worth. And now it's like, yeah, I'm pretty fucking good the way that I am, just as this guy right here, right now. Yeah, that, <laughs> that, that, that space of not being good enough really resonates with me. And what you were saying, Stephanie, about feeling small all the time. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that for me, a, a variety of reasons, it has to do with you know, the house that I grew up in and um, having a, um, a complex relationship with my father, a complex relationship with my stepdad. Um, you know, even in that relationship with my stepdad, he had kids of his own. And where I felt love from him, anytime those kids were around, I did not feel the same kind of love. And so it was different. I always felt different. Um, and so being in the community with, with other Mormons, when I was a kid, it felt, it felt fine. Um, and like you were saying, Craig, the, um, you know, the accepting as you were and, 
you know, if you're reverent and you do all these things, then you're going to get the love of God. Well, that was really never an issue for me. I wasn't worried about getting God's love. I was worried about getting the people's love around me. I was willing to do anything to get that love. Make myself small. Feel unworthy. Feel like I had to change who I was. Yeah, just that approval of the, the people around you, your, your society, your culture, your tribe, right? Yeah. Maybe there's a part of it that is, I mean, I'm always playing devil's advocate in my head of like, people are fucked up that we do this to each other and that we continue to perpetuate these cycles and all this kind of stuff in society, right? This idea that you're not good enough until you reach these markers in life, whether it's religious based or just the ones that society deems, right? Oh, you don't have a college degree? <laughs> Sorry, yeah, you're not really good enough then, right? Um, all of those things. I always try to think about what is the, not necessarily higher purpose, like not God's intention, but just from an evolutionary standpoint, what would that serve the existence of the human race, right? And I can kind of formulate a thought around maybe in some way, shape, or form, it is what gets us kind of out of the cave, right? It gets us searching and looking and kind of wanting to find out what's on the other side of the mountain so that we are stretching and exploring and expanding, which leads to like, um, <clears throat> one of the things that I think about all the time, it's because I'm a half breed. <clears throat> so I got some Mexican in me because of my dad, right? And that blending of culture and genetic material that takes place when you walk across, you know, the empty desert to go find the other tribes so that you can fuck their women. Um, and how important that is. That's a really crass way to say that, but <laughs> I mean, that's the reality of early civilization, obviously, right? And how important that is. So I think that there may be a component of, you know, you're going to be, because the idea is too, that like when you finally feel like you're good enough, then you relax and you take a deep breath and you settle. That's when you're on your cushion and you can really be okay with your life as it is. And and if we all just did that and kind of had that sensation from the get-go, then maybe we wouldn't accomplish things. Maybe it's there to, to spur innovation and growth and change that is necessary for the furthering of humans and culture and society. Just kind of that mindset. I always think of it things from that perspective. Like there has to be an evolutionary standpoint for this thing because it's so prevalent in culture and society. Yeah. Yeah, it's a possibility, right? Well, um, I mean, I, I think of it in similar terms that there's a reason why, you know, the oldest religions, um, Jainism and animism and stuff like that, they all come from, or there's, there's always an origin story um, about how we were created. And although they're different, there's a lot of similar things greek philosophy or uh yeah greek uh greek mythology rather there's a lot of similar stories the flood story and all these other things so there's there's clearly something um that was important that happened at the dawn of our civilization that needed to be um carried into today and along the lines um with those stories there are uh, lessons and morals and ways to keep our community safe and rules around that, um, which I think if, if, you, if you distill or strip away all the, 
all the stuff that is well unhealthy about the structure and institution of, of religion then you've got these things that um have created community and kept people from murdering one another or um you know taking these uh risks with oh i don't know i, I don't know there, there there are certain rules that i think that have that have been helpful in religion uh, that are maybe not so helpful anymore um and and i think that's where a lot of the shame and the guilt comes in the things that probably kept us safe from our neighbors uh, back when we were warring tribes those are things that we probably don't have to worry about anymore yeah the the i mean although it feels like at least from my perspective that man or human right people are continually evolving it's fascinating how hard it is for us to let go of old shit that doesn't work anymore <laughs> right we see it in so many different places like religion is a great example where the dogma surrounding you name it is stuff that's from hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago and the world is such a very very different place today and um yeah that too i think is like a it's a good lesson as I'm saying it now, I realize the importance of me being able to let go of some of the shit that's 30 years old or 40 years old because it doesn't really have a role in this present moment anymore, right? It's not serving me anymore. It doesn't, it doesn't have the same effect that it did when it was necessary or used, especially like some of the uh, coping mechanisms, some of the survival um, mechanisms and things that I implemented in order to get through life and trauma and all those kind of different things. Because that's one thing that Stephanie and I have noticed lately is we're starting to get some real clarity on like pattern recognition of our own uh, emotional, mental, kind of physical state, right? And seeing, oh, oh my God, like almost in, um, not live action, what am I saying? Almost as it's happening getting the recognition of like, I am feeling this thing in response to this catalyst, this emotional trigger, whatever it might be. And now I'm almost subconsciously going down that path and I don't need to, right? That path is one that was there because of survival that was needed at the time or whatever it might be. So we're getting real clear pattern recognition as it's happening and able to sometimes shift it right in the moment but oftentimes it's just more kind of fodder for the future right just that awareness so that maybe next time we can stop it in its tracks or better yet avoid it completely what's one that stands out to you babe as i mentioned that the, the real world uh, awareness of your the real <laughs> of your fucked up parts <laughs> well what this is speaking to, so instead of having one that like stands out, um, what this is speaking to is my resistance to acceptance. Um, like I, I know the beauty in it and I am working on the, I guess the high road of acceptance and when you can be at peace with it. But all of that triggers, like my resistance of acceptance is equaling when you accept something then you're agreeing that that's the way it is and that's the way it's going to stay and it feels stagnant and it feels um, like you're trapped, like you're stuck that you can't be on. Like you agree 
that this is how it is. I accept that this is my fate. And now instead of being able to evolve and grow and be brave enough to change that situation into a healthier one, it feels like you're, you're there. So that's, that's really like, I'm having a hard time even branching out. I'm like, that's why you can't accept anything. You have to be willing to grow. And that's just not the case. There's that, that, that piece, um, which you can, when you allow yourself to accept where you are. And so I guess we'll just say one of the things that are standing out that I'm not going to go into great detail in because we're, is the, um, my relationship with food and how unhealthy that is and, um, the eating disorder that I have with it. I have been like in either acceptance of it as what it meant to me as like, this is the way it is. And I'm just not going to look at it. And we're just going through the motions. And here we are to completely opposition and digging with everything I have to fight, which sometimes is still that, but seeing the difference of when like these things come up and these patterns come up, accepting that this is what it is. And this is what it really feels like for me right now. And this is what, what is this moment? But it does not mean that that's where I'm staying. That does not mean that that's where the future is. Like, this is true. This is true that this is what it feels like. This is true that's what I'm experiencing. And the choices that I make beyond that will dictate the future or produce the future. I don't know what word to use there. But it gives it like the options, the possibilities for a different future than the acceptance of the reality that is in the moment. Now I feel silly. Chris, do you have some, um, some of that kind of in the moment recognition that you're seeing and that you're able to kind of catalyze into change and growth? Well, what immediately came up when, when you were speaking, Steph, um, was this, I've recently just decided to stop drinking and, um, you know, for the last few years, I had been telling myself that, you know, I have it under control. It's not an issue, despite the fact that all the signs of my family's alcoholism, uh, I have an uncle who, who, um, died from alcoholism. All those signs were there that it's probably just not something that's good for me. Um, I had to come to grips with the fact that I don't have a problem, but it's still not good for me. And so I, I felt like I was perpetuating this, um, this sort of social drinking around others um, because I didn't want to feel excluded, but I was also proving that like, oh, I can handle it. I can handle it. Um, cause if I accept the fact that it's just not a good thing for me, then that means there's, there's something flawed with me. Um, and I, 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 you know, there wasn't this big aha moment. Um, but it was a, it was another moment where for me, I just, I just decided, you know what? I know I feel better when I'm not drinking. I feel better. And that's, that's all that should matter all the story that I've been filling in on the back side of things. That's just story. It's, it's, it's not serving me anymore. 
and I, I'm done with it. I'm done with that. And I'm leaving that story in yesterday. So I, I'm hoping that in some way answers your question, Craig. <laughs> it does, man. Um, before we wrap up, I want to ask you about um, your coaching and your practice and what that looks like and uh, how it feels basically to kind of be doing something super aligned with who you are and how it feels to be you, right? Yeah, it's, um, it's been an amazing, difficult uphill journey. Um, and I was fortunate that the, the school that I went with it, it basically had taught me how to be a better coach. Uh, one of their first edicts is, uh, to, to get your stuff in order, basically work on yourself before you try to help others. And, um, yeah, there were, there was a lot of opportunity to work on myself over these last couple of years and, um, recognizing that this is what I've always been meant to do and that it's okay to do that thing, even though it's sometimes really hard. Um, it, it fills me up. It fills me up in a way that few other things in my life, um, have been able to do. And, um, you know, when I get to connect with my clients about the things that are happening in their lives and they have a moment where we get to celebrate together and they've achieved something that they only dreamed about. Um, even the small things to me, that's, I love that. I love that. Like every morsel of it, I soak up and, um, it gives me purpose. And I think that's the broader thing. Um, getting an opportunity to impart some good in this world um, and, and be along a steward or be a, a shepherd for somebody else's journey so that way they can put some good in their life and the lives around them. Um, yeah, that feels... pretty amazing that makes me happy man it makes me way happy baby do you have any questions before we wrap up where can people find you it's <laughs> <laughs> a great question um so michigan, my business right? michigan yeah <laughs> well i do um i i only do virtual appointments so all of my sessions are done via zoom so that makes it easy um mm -hmm. So anyone anywhere in the world can reach me at frontofcenter.com uh, or you can find me on Facebook at Front of Center or Instagram at Front of Center. But uh, yeah, that's where I can be found. Chris, I love you. I'm so grateful that uh, we were able to do this and that you took the time to come back on the podcast. I should have looked. I was supposed to look because um, you were on an earlier, earlier episode back in the 100s. Um, it doesn't matter. <laughs> we'll share it at some point. So then people can uh, go back and listen to that episode too. But thank you, man. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so both for having me. Happy. I got to know you. Thank you. Likewise.
we'll be sure to share everything in the show notes and people can go follow you. And uh, I would encourage people to work with Chris, obviously. Absolutely. You can tell from this last little bit that uh, you got your shit together. Uh, one of the things that I was going to say early on, um, I'm going to try to say this in a way that isn't self-deprecating. From the time that I've met you, and as long as I've known you, I've always admired your presence. And it seems to me, it feels like you are slower than, <laughs> this sounds terrible for you. <laughs> it seems like you're slower than everybody else, but I don't mean that in the um, intellect kind of way. It just seems like you're moving at a slower pace than everybody else. And that, like I said, that doesn't, that's not a lack. That's just like you have so much presence with mm -hmm. um, your existence, it feels like. And what that leads to, I believe, is when you speak, it feels more authentic and real. And it feels more like it is coming from that slowed down place. So there's more truth in it. And I've always admired that in you. It's something that I've um, felt from the beginning and wanted to uh, exhibit and uh, embody myself. So that was uh, obvious throughout this whole episode. So I appreciate it. Man. Well, thank you. Thank you. You're an awesome guy. Go thank follow much. him. Front of center. <laughs>